number of years ago, I came into the building before the morning service, and there was a small group of people gathered, and there was a young man who was coming to our church at the time. Um, he, he had some mental problems. As a child, he had been hit by a car while riding his bike, and uh, it, it uh, damaged his brain. And he was a sweet young man. His name was David, very nice. Um, I remember Frank had witnessed to him over and over and over again. And uh, at one point, David did make a profession of faith. I don't know if it was genuine or not. But on this particular day, David was, was bound and determined to announce to the entire church family something really important on his heart. So he got up behind the microphone before I could catch him. He got up and he said, Carolina won! Now, If your team lost, that's disappointment. Being hit by a car, your son being hit by a car, and being brain damaged, that's grief. Grief is acute pain because of a loss of something dear or precious. It is deep distress. Something greater than disappointment. I mean, it's disappointing to lose your job. It's grief when you get blamed for something you didn't do. Worse, when you are actually part of the solution to the problem. It's disappointing to have a relationship problem in your marriage. It's grief to go through divorce. It's disappointment when your child has socialization problems at school, but it's grief when he comes home and you find out that he's being bullied. Do you see the difference? A few years ago, I had to go through probably the worst experience any pastor has to go through, and there is no preparation any seminary gives for this kind of thing. Because I sat in a hospital room and watched a little infant boy die while his parents held him and grieved as his last breath left his little body. That's grief. Grief is when your home burns down. Grief is when your small business fails. Put your whole life into it, and it's ruined. Grief is when you discover your child has severe special needs. Grief is when you have terminal cancer. And grief is all around us. It's everywhere you look. Everywhere you go in this world, we bump into people who are grieving. I was sitting with some pastors at a dinner, and a waitress came over. It was a fast food place. And she looked like there was something wrong with her. And so I said, before she could ask me about my order, are you okay? She burst into tears, sobbing, fits of tears. Everybody at the table thought I'd said something to her. Oh, what in the world? I didn't say, I just asked her how she was doing. She was obviously 
grieving. Everywhere you go in this world, you bump into people who are grieving because we live in a world of sin. Because we live in a sinful world, we should expect grief to be a part of life. You'll face grief in your job, in your children's lives, in your own life. Whether I die first or not, my 26-year-old marriage will eventually end, and then one of us gets to grieve. But even while we should expect grief to be part of life, we should also be pursuing a godly response as an opportunity for Christ-likeness. I mean, that's the dream, right? That's the hope, I think, as Christians. We want to respond properly to grief. We want to grieve like the Lord Jesus responded in His trials. Every trial is an opportunity for God to remind us that He is faithful, for us to renew with Him our covenant pledge that we are love Him and serve Him in this life. And that all we really have is his, so that when God does burn down my house, he burned down his house. And if he allows my business to fail, it was his business that failed. And this is because grief is not the end. It's just the moment. The end is always Christ for a Christian. The end is always eternal bliss with God for the believer. The end is not here. The end is not now. This is what I want to show you today. But to do that, we have to start with grief itself. So let's begin in 1 Samuel 18. I want to show you about grief from the life of David. Number one. Our greatest griefs may come from other people. There are lots of reasons why people grieve. But I think the majority of our griefs come in relation to other people because other people's sins can hurt us. Saul sinned against David being jealous of his popularity. You look at verse 8 of chapter 18. It says uh, that Saul was angry and he was displeased because of the saying. The saying from verse 7, the women women were singing, Saul has slain his thousands, David his ten thousands. And this made Saul angry. He was selfishly upset with David. It bothered him in his heart. He was angry because of David's popularity. He was upset by it. He was displeased. Somebody else was getting recognition. He was the king. Somebody else was being honored. He was supposed to be the first citizen of the nation. But someone else was being lifted above him. David has slain his ten thousands. And because of that, he became obsessed with David. He kept his eye on him. You see that? Verse 9, he eyed David from that day and forward. He was jealous of him. He sinned against David. How should we feel when people are exalted? How should we as believers feel when others are honored? We should rejoice with those who rejoice. Let me tell on myself a little bit. When we started our church, we did everything we knew, which was really not very much, but we did it all to try to get the ball rolling. When you start a church, it's like 
making a snowman. You get a little ball of snow, and then you kind of roll it on the ground. Pieces fall off. Little snow sticks on. You roll a little more. Pieces stick. Roll a little more. Eventually, you've got a bigger ball, right? And then you start building your snowman that way. And that's kind of how we did it. At the end of a year, I think we had about 20 people coming to church, maybe 25. We had been through a lot of folks. I remember there was one man who told me that he was, uh, uh, he was a, a guy who had wanted to be a pastor, and he was just really excited about our church, and his wife was playing the piano for us. And then I found out he was coming to our church after going to another church's early service, and it wasn't long before he was at that other church. And he just kind of left us in the lurch. His wife went from being our pianist to not being around anymore. Just one Sunday, they weren't there. That was difficult. And then I'll never forget the gentleman who I put in charge of greeting at a door of the church. Right after we chartered, he, he told uh, one of the visitors coming in, hey, you know what, this is the week after he signed our church charter to become a member. He told one of the visitors, hey, next Sunday I'm going to go start my own church. Would you like to come with me? And then I had a friend come to town about five years after we'd started. And we had been through so much. And my friend Mike came to town and he, he said, Matt, do you think we should plant a church in this area? And I said, absolutely. You need to come on. Plant a church somewhere. He was looking at Durham. He was looking uh, at Clayton. And he ended up moving to Clayton. He planted a church there. And I don't know what it was, but as difficult as we had it in just trying to get anybody to come to church, just putting people into our church, just getting the ball rolling, he started with more than 100 people. They've never had a service. They've been around for about 15 years now. They've never had a service with fewer than 100 people. We had services when nobody showed up. And I looked at him, and I was jealous. And I say, why would God allow him to be so successful? And, and he would make us struggle so much. I don't know the answer to that. But I can tell you, it's easy to sin against other people and become jealous. And that's exactly what Saul did. And worse, his jealousy led to a murderous intent. You see in verse 11, Saul, he's got this javelin in his hand. Now he cast the javelin, for he said, I will smite David even to the wall. If you go over to chapter 19 and verse 10. He sought to smite David even to the wall with his javelin. In chapter 18, he threw two javelins at David. David eluded him twice. I don't think he threw the javelin, went and retrieved it, and while David stood there stationary, took another shot. I don't think that's what happened. I think he had more than one spear laying by him. He threw a spear, missed, took up, threw another spear. Apparently Saul was a lousy spearman, right? Thank the Lord. David's thanking the Lord for that. But he's sinning against David, attempting to murder him. And Saul's jealousy has now led with a desire to murder David. This is sin that really does affect your life. When someone says, I want to kill that guy, I want to hurt that person, that's that person's sin really affecting you. And if you think about this, it's even worse than that because David was trying to help Saul. 
You see, those we help may hurt us in return. People can respond angrily to our gentleness toward them. It says, again, in chapter 18, verse 10, On the morrow, the evil spirit from God came upon Saul, and he prophesied in the midst of the house, and David played with his hand. David was a musician. He was really an interesting man. He was a musician, he was a warrior, and he was a king. He, he was one of the world's greatest poets. One of the poems that David wrote is the favorite poem of many people still walking the earth today. And he lived thousands of years ago. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And David, he had his guitar. That's what it was. It was basically the old ancient equivalent of a guitar. And I guess he was a youth pastor, maybe. <laughs> playing for Saul, playing his guitar. But he played his stringed instrument. He strummed it, played with his hand. And Saul is angry. David is being gentle. David is trying to help this person. David is pouring out his life into Saul's life, doing everything he can to help this person, actually Saul, actually be at peace. He's giving himself. And Saul, what is he doing? Even while David's hand is strumming the strings on his instrument, David, Saul's hand is fiddling with a couple of spears because he wants to stab David with them. His mind is fixed on his jealousy of David with an instrument of war in his hand. And my friends, it's real grief when people turn on you and their sin affects you. It's even worse when you've been trying to help them. When your gentleness is rewarded with their anger. It's not happened often in ministry, but I can tell you there have been times where my attempts at helping people have been reciprocated that way, where people have responded to my desire to help them, truly be a help to them with anger. And that's exactly what David faced. In fact, not only that, they may hatefully respond to your faithfulness toward them. Look at chapter 19. What's David doing? There's war again, and David went out. Saul's not going out. David went out and led the army and fought with the Philistines. Saul has put him, David in position as a general of his armies, hoping that David would be killed in battle. And David goes out and fights the Philistines, and he, it says he slew them with great slaughter. He killed many Philistines. They fled from him. He's defending the country. He's defending the nation. He's defending Saul. And really from the very beginning of Saul's interaction with David, that began on the day that David killed Goliath, the leader of the Philistine army. From that day to this day, David has been doing everything he can to really be a blessing to the life of Saul. He's been faithful to Saul. But Saul's response has been nothing but hate toward him. Once in a while, he'll repent. He'll say, David, I'm sorry for what I've done. I'm sorry for the way I've treated you. But really, the overall expression is one of hate. He even tries to kill his own son, Jonathan, because Jonathan loves David. And so here's David. He goes out and he conquers the Philistines, triumphs over them, 
victory in his military duties, and God gave him the great victory, and Saul should have been rejoicing with David, but instead of rejoicing, he's planning David's death. You see that the evil spirit from the Lord was upon Saul as he sat in his house and with his javelin in his hand. So while David is coming back to say, we have conquered the Philistines, Saul is thinking, I can murder him now. And if you want to really know grief, it's when the people you are loving and trying to help turn on you like a rabid dog. And then you know pain. And then you know suffering. And I'm just going to tell you something, friends. The longer you live and the more you try to be like Christ, the more you're going to face this kind of thing. What do you think is going through Jesus' mind when he's washing Judas's feet? What do you think the Lord is thinking? A couple of hours later when Judas is going to be in the garden with the rabble holding swords and staves, sticks, clubs in their hands, arresting Jesus, and G Judas will come up and kiss him on the cheek. Master, what is Jesus thinking? Here's someone for years, he has been pouring his life into this man, and he hates him. He wants to see him gone, eliminated, taken out of the way. How do you think Jesus feels? Well, the truth is, friends, is that grief may come from other people, and that may be the source of our greatest griefs. And I can think of marriages that have failed, and one spouse has been faithful to God, and it didn't matter. The other spouse is unfaithful and leaves the marriage, and you watch that faithful spouse grieve. The person she loved the person he loved has turned and left. And that's grief. I've had some of my closest friends leave our church never to speak to me again. What in the world? Some of them, one I thought was my best friend, tried to split our church. That's grief. That is grief. I won't even go into the details. It's not important. Now, if you think about it, undeserved grief can really upset your life. So if you realize that grief is inevitable, I mean, this is going to happen. I guess you could lock yourself in a room and <laughs> try to be away from every other person. You'll still face grief, different kind of grief. But you'll have grief. But wherever you go, you have grief. And when it's undeserved, and I say that because we can bring grief upon ourselves. Okay, you know what I'm talking about there. But when it's undeserved grief, it can really seriously upset your life. You may have to make life changes. You go back to chapter 18, look again at verse 11. What did David have to do? He had to run from his king. He had to flee Saul's presence. Again, chapter 19, verse 9, David fled and escaped that night. David had to run for his life. That's a life change. He, he's not safe in the palace anymore. He's fighting for Saul. He's doing everything he can to help Saul. Now Saul's trying to kill him, and David is having to run from Saul. 
major life shift, major upheaval. It's, it's not simple any longer. Think about how life-changing this is. He's not safe around the king. I guess he lost his generalship in the army. Saul's not going to want him to be head of the army if this is the way it's going to be. He's persona non grata, as they say. He's, his life's changed. His life's shifted. And you'll find in your grief, major life changes come. I, I imagine our brothers and sisters in Ukraine are going through that right now. I, I mean, two months ago, this is a modern, westernized nation. Now it's just rubble. People fighting for scraps of food. Imagine the believers worshiping there today trying to gather in some sort of church to sing praises to God while their lives are totally upended. That's what grief brings. You may have to go through life changes. Your family may have to go through life changes. Again, chapter 19, look at verse 11. Saul sent messengers to David's house. Now, this is not a big city like, you know, Mexico City, London, where it takes an hour to get from one side to the other, maybe longer. This is a little, tiny little village in the way we think of towns. Getting from one side of the city to the other wouldn't have taken very long. Saul sends messengers to David's house to watch him and to slay him in the morning. So he says, go, and they're there in just a matter of minutes. Michael, David's wife, says, if you don't leave tonight, you'll be dead in the morning. Now, Michael is Saul's daughter, and Michael and David have a very complicated marriage, as you can imagine. I mean, it gets really bad. Michael ends up married to another man after David leaves. And then she's restored to David, but has no children because she mocks David's worship of God. It's a really difficult marriage. But David had difficult marriages, right? And the fact of being that he had more than one is, is problematic. I had a guy tell me once, he said, he said to me uh, something about how he's had all these girlfriends. And he said, uh, he was making fun of the fact that I didn't have one at the time or something. I was in college. And I'm thinking, man, why would you want more than one? One. That's, that's God gives you one, right? One is all you need. Here's David. He's got a bunch. He's got problems. But he has to leave her. Saul now puts spies on his doorstep. If he remains in the village, he'll be captured. And think about how that changed his life. He's not safe in the palace. Now he's not even safe in his own home. I don't think any of us have ever had to face that down. He's not safe in his house. I had a pastor friend. He preached for us a few years ago uh, when, we, when we started uh, Cornerstone Baptist in Raleigh. He, was, uh, he preached the commissioning service. Uh, he's from Colorado. When he was pastoring in South Carolina, he actually had a man threaten his life. And the guy was actually at one point during the middle of the week when nobody else was around, apparently in the church building, looking for him to try to hunt him down to kill him. And that's kind of the thing David's going through. He's not safe in the palace. He's not safe at home. His closest relationships are turned upside down. He has no place to go. He has no one he can trust. He's running for his life. He's a refugee. And if you think about how... Great this is of an upset. Here he is. He's just living his life, 
trying to help Saul. Saul's jealous of him. Saul wants to murder him. He now, is his life's totally upended because of this. He's fleeing from Saul. He can't go back to the palace. He can't even go back to his house. And my friend, all of that is grief. And what I'm here to tell you is, if you think about these things and you can identify with any of this, if you can look at this kind of experience and you can say, I can identify a little bit of this, maybe it's in your marriage, maybe it's in your career, maybe it's in your children, maybe it's in your parents, if you're younger and you have parental problems, maybe it's in your community, maybe it's just been in your life, it's not a person, but just circumstances of life, and you have all this grief and all this loss, it's just kind of tumbled down on your head. If you can identify with David and said, my life has been turned upside down, my whole experience is completely upended, then I am here to tell you, and this is the blessing of the text. It's going to seem a little bit strange as we go through it, but here's the blessing, friends. In every grief you face, God is with you. You are never alone. And here is where it begins. It's the little part at the beginning that seems kind of strange that you bleep over. It's when the writer of 1 Samuel says, it came to pass on the morrow, an evil spirit from God came upon Saul. Verse 19, chapter 19, verse 9, the evil spirit from the Lord, from Jehovah, was upon Saul. You see, God may ordain, he may allow grief into our lives. This here, I think is the second step in Saul's increasing hatred of David. It says in verse 8 of chapter 18, he's jealous of David's popularity. Remember, he comes back victorious from the war and the women are singing. Saul is slain his thousands and David is ten thousands and Saul is jealous of that. But as an unbeliever, he's susceptible to demonic influence. The evil spirit, don't misunderstand, that's a demon. The fact that it was sent by God doesn't belie the fact that this is an evil spirit. In fact, I think it's interesting. It says here in the Holman Christian Standard Bible that the demon took control. That When we say came upon in the King James, you understand that means to assume control. The demon took control over Saul. And when it says that he prophesied, I like the way the New American Standard puts it. It says he raved. You see, when an evil spirit comes upon a person, they don't prophesy in the biblical sense, in the good, righteous sense. They're not preaching truth when an evil spirit's upon them. They're preaching lies. They're speaking things that are false. And Saul is susceptible. Saul is open now to demonic influence. And all of that is coming from God. In fact, God may not just allow this, he may direct grief into your life. The evil spirit was from the Lord. And I think it's very important that you see how this kind of thing works. So would you just stop for a moment and look over at 1 Kings chapter 22. In 1 Kings 22, we have a story. It's one of my favorite in the Bible. Jehoshaphat is going to go up with... Ahab, 
to battle. And Jehoshaphat said in verse 8, the king of Israel said, Ahab said to Jehoshaphat, I'm sorry, Jehoshaphat asks in verse 7 if they may inquire of the Lord. Ahab says in verse 8, there is yet one man, Micaiah, the son of Imlah, by whom we may inquire of the Lord, but I hate him. For he doth not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. And Jehoshaphat says, don't say that. Come on. Jehoshaphat is such a dupe here. The king of Israel called an officer and said, Hasten hither, Micaiah, the son of Imlah. And the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, sat each on the throne, having put on their robes in a, in a place of entrance of the gate of Samaria, and all the prophets prophesied before them. These are the false prophets of Ahab. And Zedekiah, he's a false prophet, the son of Chekanah, uh, made horns of iron and said, Thus saith the Lord, with these shall we, you push the Syrians until you've consumed them. And all the prophets prophesied so, saying, Go up to Ramoth Gilead and prosper, for the Lord shall deliver it into the king's hand. And the messenger that was gone to call Micaiah spake unto him, saying, Behold now the words of the prophets. Declare good words to the king with your mouth. And let your word, I pray you, be like the word of one of them, and speak that which is good. Okay, so do you see what they tell him? We've all been telling him, go up to Ramoth Gilead, do what you want to do. God is with you. And when Micaiah shows up, the prophets kind of get around him and say, hey, listen, we need you to say what we just said. You need to tell him it's good to go up to Ramoth Gilead. And Micaiah said, as the Lord lives, what the Lord saith unto me, that will I speak. <laughs> what is he just saying to them? What did he just say? I don't care what you say. I'm only going to say what God says. So he came to the king, and the king said to Micaiah, shall we go up to Ramoth Gilead to battle or forbear? And Micaiah answered him, exactly like the prophets wanted, right? Go and prosper. The Lord will deliver it into the hand of the king. But the king knew, Ahab knew he was lying to him and being sarcastic because the king said, how many times shall I tell you that you tell me nothing but that which is true in the name of the Lord? So stop it. Tell me really what God said. And he said, this is Micaiah, verse 17, I saw all Israel scattered upon the hills as sheep that have not a shepherd. And the Lord said, these have no master. Let them return every man to his house in peace. And the king of Israel said unto Jehoshaphat, Did I not tell you he would prophesy no good concerning me but evil? I told you. That's what he would say. And he said, Hear thou for the word of the Lord. And this is the most interesting part of this passage. I want you to get this. Look right down at the text. Hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and the host of heaven standing by him on his right hand and on his left. This is the divine council. That's what scholars call this. And the Lord said, Who shall persuade Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And the one said on this manner, and another said on that manner. And there came forth a spirit and stood before the Lord and said, I will persuade him. That's a, that's a demon, friends. Up to right now, Satan is still allowed in God's presence in heaven. They haven't been expelled yet. That's coming. And the Lord said to him, wherewith? And he said, I will go forth and I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of his prophets. Now, I mean, Micaiah, he did not read the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. He's just insulted everybody, right? He just told Ahab, I saw sheep scattered with no shepherd, right? The king is the shepherd. He's about to be dead. And then he said, 
You'll be misled by your prophets because I'll be a lying spirit in the mouth of the prophets. And he said, thou shalt persuade him and prevail also. Go forth and do so. So God sends forth this demon into the prophets. And the prophets are actually saying, go up to Ramoth Gilead. Verse 23, now therefore, behold, the Lord put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these prophets, and the Lord has spoken evil concerning you. But Zedekiah, the son of Chechanah, went near and smote Micaiah on the cheek and said, which way went the spirit of the Lord from me to speak to thee? No, no, no. I have God's spirit. You don't have God's spirit. I have God's spirit. That's what Zedekiah is saying. But Zedekiah, that spirit he has is not God's spirit. It's a demon. It's a lying spirit. Now go back over to 1 Samuel 18. Who is the spirit from the Lord upon Saul? Who is that spirit? That's a demonic spirit. And why is he there? He is there to bring out of Saul what is in Saul's heart. He's going to reveal to David what's in Saul's heart. And I believe, this is just my conjecture, it's because I don't know that David really understood how bad Saul was. I don't think David fully grasped at this point how evil Saul was. He's the anointed one of God. Samuel poured oil over his head and anointed him king over Israel. He was the chosen one by God. He can't be bad. But he's evil. And all of that you say, and I think people go to this text and they say, wait a minute, wait, 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 wait. What you're saying then is David having Saul try to murder him, David having to leave the palace, David having to leave his occupation as military leader, David having to leave his own home and his wife, all of that is because of God? No, it's because of Saul. All God did was bring that out of him. Now, I said it was a little strange because that's kind of an unsatisfying answer for some people. They almost want to say, but if God had left Saul alone, then maybe this wouldn't have happened. That's because we look at good and bad through life circumstances and only. That's the only lens people see life, good and bad. If, does the circumstances turn out good? Then it's good. Did it turn out bad? Then it's bad. That's the only lens people see things. They struggle to see the eternal values. What I'm here to tell you is the part that you should focus on is that God was involved in the process. How do you think David was able to slip away from Saul? Three times. How was he able to elude Saul's javelin three times? The text doesn't say specifically, but I know the answer. Because God was with him the whole time. When he's fleeing from Saul in the wilderness, God is with him as he's writing some of the Psalms. Do you know some of the dearest Psalms you read are Psalms that David wrote as he was running from Saul? And if David had never run from Saul, he would never have written those Psalms. And now centuries later, millennia later, you in a time of grief, pick up your Bible, you turn to the Psalms and you begin to read and the words of God wash across your heart and you feel exulting. You feel exultant. You feel lifted up because of what David is writing. And he only wrote it because of this situation. God is orchestrating all of these events to bring about something 
so that you can be blessed. So that you can get peace in your heart in a time of grief. I'm going to tell you something, friends. No matter the circumstance, good or bad, the world may say, this is the worst possible thing that could have happened to you. No matter the circumstance, good or bad, you want to be where God is. You want to be in the hands of the Lord. You want to be doing his will. I love the city of Chicago. It's one of my favorite places to go. Now, it's not got a very nice climate. It, it doesn't have a very good government. And the people there can be, well, they can be a little hard to live with. I had a pastor friend who stood outside of his parsonage Second floor, looked out the window and watched thieves break into his car and steal his radio. I said, what did you do? He said, I didn't, what am I going to do? If I call the police, the time they're there, and half an hour has gone by, those, those folks are long gone. If I go outside, they'll beat me up. I let them steal my radio. I'm asked, what are you going to do? It's Chicago. That's yeah, Chicago. I think they even glory a little bit in that, you know. It's got, you got to be tough to live in Chicago. The weather's terrible. It's the windy city. I guess that's not so bad when it's warm, although it's a hot wind. And then when it's cold, it's a very cold wind. It's just, it's a miserable place, but I love it. I really do. I love it. I'll never forget getting out of my van once and stepping into about 24 inches of snow, maybe more, and just going, that's Chicago. You know, you're up to your knees in snow. Many years ago, there was a, a lawyer living in Chicago. And he had a house in the downtown area. It was in the 1800s. I think it was 1800s. Maybe it was the early 20th century. Well, have you heard of the great Chicago fire? It burned his house down. There wasn't insurance like there is today. You know, your house burns down, you lose, you lose some sentimental value things, but you don't really lose much, right? I mean, insurance writes you a check, you start rebuilding, you buy a new home. If you can, you know, in our area, if you can, you buy a new home. This guy lost everything in the fire. People in his Presbyterian church he was attending thought, there must be something wrong with you. Why would, why would God down, burn down your house? He didn't burn down any of our houses. And even though he was an influential member of the church, he was ostracized just a little bit because of the suffering he was going through, he and his family. Now, that would be enough suffering for one lifetime, wouldn't you say? To, go, to actually lose everything, to have to completely start over financially, to lose all of your valuables, all of your prized and treasured possessions, that would be enough grief for one lifetime, to have your church family think ill of you, God's rewarding you for some sin in your life, kind of like Job, that would be enough trauma for one lifetime. But that's not all the grief God brought into Horatio Spafford's life. 
because it was a few years later when his children were killed crossing the Atlantic Ocean. Their boat sank and only his wife survived. And we know this story about Spafford because he then wrote the hymn, When Peace Like a River Attends My Way. When sorrow like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, God hath taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Whatever grief you're facing, friends, it's an opportunity for you to show Christ. And that only comes when you fully grasp the reality that in all your griefs, God is there. Let's pray together. Lord, I do thank you for this passage and story from David's life. Without it, so much of what we need would be lost. Thank you for recording it and preserving it for us. And I pray that we would respond to the trials of our life when our houses burn down, as it were, that you would help us not to respond in anger and frustration, not to be angry at you, but rather, Lord, to see it as an opportunity to show Christ. Before I finish praying, I'm a little hesitant to ask this question, but maybe you can respond. How many of you are angry at God? God has sent something evil into your life, and you're angry. I don't know what it is, but you know in your heart, and God knows in his heart. And right now, you can honestly say, I'm angry at, I'm angry at God. I had a pastor friend tell me a few years ago on the phone. He said, Jesus and I are okay, but I'm kind of angry at the Father right now. He had just lost his home. Because of it, he had to leave his ministry. I thought that was a really honest answer. And maybe you're here. And maybe because of your health, or maybe because of some sinful addiction, or maybe because of some trial at your work, you're angry at God for directing that difficulty into your life. Would you be honest enough, honest enough to say, Pastor, pray for me? Anybody like that at all? Just slip up your hand. I want to pray for you. It, it takes a lot of honesty. I don't know if anybody here wants to do that, but if you are willing to say, I'm angry at God, I want to pray for you. Anybody at all? Raise your hand. Okay. Maybe you're here, you say, Pastor, I'm going through some very difficult, grieving situations. And today the Holy Spirit reminded me through the message that God's right with me every step of the way. And I'm asking him to help me be Christ-like in this situation. And if that's, if that's your prayer, if you want God to help you in your time of grief, 
Just raise your hand. I want to pray for you. Anybody like that, brother? Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. Pastor, I'm grieving over some things. And you want God's help. Anybody else? Yes, sir. Lord, I pray that you'd help us who are not grieving to have a real gentle spirit toward those who are, to love them, to show Christ's love to them. And Lord Jesus, I pray that your Holy Spirit would please wrap his arms around us as you lead us down the path of righteousness for your name's sake. We know that sometimes that's the valley of the shadow of death. Help us to fear no evil because you are with us. Because your rod and your staff comfort us. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.